0: Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Dorothy Jane Scott. But first, your true crime headlines. In Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, an Amish bishop is facing felony and misdemeanor charges for failing to report suspected child abuse to proper authorities. 63-year-old Levi Esh Sr. is the bishop of two Amish congregations in the county, which is home to the largest Amish population in the world, A member of one of his congregation's 41-year-old, John Byler, allegedly confessed to the bishop that he had sexually assaulted three girls sometime in 2012 or 2013. The bishop instructed Byler to confess the assaults to the girl's father and excommunicated him from the church, but did not report the crimes to police. When other members of the congregation questioned Esch about the church's handling of the assaults, the bishop told them that it had been handled internally, and that they should let it go. The Amish are adherents to a separatist Christian sect that focuses on simple living, foregoing modern conveniences like cars and cell phones, and limiting contact with non-Amish. Their religion focuses on forgiveness and repentance, and serious crimes like sexual assault are often regarded as sins by church elders, many of whom choose to administer discipline through the church Rather than involving police, Esh remains free on $25,000 unsecured bail. Byler, who faces multiple charges of indecent assault of a child, corruption of minors, and unlawful contact with minors, is free on $75,000 unsecured bail, according to court records. A Southern California doctor is facing mail fraud charges after selling coronavirus treatments online, claiming to offer a 100% cure and immunity to the virus. 44-year-old Jennings Ryan Staley, a licensed physician and owner of Skinny Beach Med Spa in San Diego, California, was selling concierge medicine experience packages online which retailed for $3,995 for a family of four and included access to the doctor, anti-anxiety pills for stress, and the drugs hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, which had been touted by President Trump and numerous conservative media personalities as a possible treatment for the virus. Authorities received a tip last month about the doctor selling the purported cures through his office, which generally focuses on services like Botox and hair removal. An undercover FBI agent spoke with Dr. Staley on the telephone, who is alleged to have claimed that the drugs were, quote, curative and preventative, and could not only cure COVID-19, but also offer six weeks of immunity from the virus. Dr. Staley's attorney said that his client was following the example of the president, stating that, quote, the same executive branch that has been touting these two medications for weeks has now turned around and criminally charged an Iraq veteran, Dr. Staley, no criminal record for doing exactly the same thing that the administration's been doing this whole time. Dr. Staley could face up to 20 years in prison if he is convicted. The prime suspect in the double murder of a Utah couple has been apprehended in California after attempting to evade officers and resisting arrest. 31-year-old Albert Enoch Johnson was arrested in Stockton, California, and will be extradited to Utah to stand charges for the shooting deaths of Tony and Catherine Butterfield, who were shot dead in their home as their three children slept. Police have said that Johnson knew the couple, and that the attack was a targeted, isolated incident. In a booking photo released by the San Joaquin Sheriff's Department, Johnson's right eye appears to be swollen shut, and he has multiple injuries to his face. Police said that those injuries were incurred during Johnson's apprehension, as he attempted to evade and resist arrest. Johnson's wife, 29-year-old Sina Johnson, was arrested for obstruction of justice and tampering with evidence on Monday. Police have declined to release more information about the crime and the connection between Johnson and the Butterfields at this time, citing the ongoing murder investigation. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Dorothy Jane Scott. But first, a quick break. Quarantine can get pretty lonely. So now, more than ever, I need my best fiends. Best Fiends is the app that engages my brain with challenging but fun puzzle games and lets me get out of lockdown in my apartment and get into a beautiful world of deserts, frozen hills and cute, animated characters. The game is simple. The good guys are the bugs and the bad guys are the slugs. Complete the puzzles to defeat the slugs as you travel through the world of minutia, collecting keys and unlocking new fiends along the way. Like Brittle the Housefly, Edward the Mosquito, and my best fiend, Pop the Axolotl. One of the things I love about True Crime is that the more you dig into the story, the more layers you uncover. And that's what's great about Best Fiends, too. The more I play, the more fun it gets. And with new monthly updates, themed challenges and holiday puzzles, the adventure never gets old. This is my pandemic must play. So the next time you need a break from the news cycle, Download Best Fiends free. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun at your fingertips, and can even be played offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. It can be hard to stick to your health and weight loss goals when you're quarantined during a global pandemic one of my new year's resolutions for example was to go to the gym more noom is the fitness app that knows that there are many reasons to practice self-care especially now and that every person is different noom helped me personalize a new fitness plan to keep me on track now that i'm social distancing from my personal trainer Noom teaches you why you make the decisions you make, to help you build better habits based on your goals. Noom helps you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyzing what you're eating and recommending healthy recipes. But Noom is not a diet. No food is good, bad, or off-limits. So whatever you're stockpiling during the pandemic, Noom will help you make it work. Right now, Noom is teaching me how to stop myself from stress-eating all of my quarantine rations for the week in one day. That's because Noom is based in psychology. This app teaches me why I do the things I do and empowers me with the tools I need to break the bad habits and replace them with better ones. Look, Noom understands that you have a lot on your mind. You don't have to change it all overnight. And just because you're quarantined doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so that you have all the support you need to empower your change in challenging times. Small steps make big progress, even if they are just pacing around your living room. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com/mm. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com/mm to get started today. That's N-O-O-M. .com/mm Welcome back to Murder Minute. In 1980, 32-year-old Dorothy Jane Scott was a single mother living with her 4-year-old son Sean at her aunt's house in Stanton, California. Every day, Dorothy drove to nearby Anaheim to drop her son off at her parents Vera and Jacob Scott's house for the day while Dorothy went to work. Dorothy worked full-time as a secretary at Swinger's Psych Shop, which used to be owned by her father, and Custom John's Head Shop. The two businesses were run jointly under the same management, and although the clientele may have liked to party, Dorothy did not. A kind-hearted and dependable, devout Christian, Dorothy was, as one friend put it, as dull as a phone book. She almost never went out and rarely dated. But despite being a homebody, for several months, Dorothy Jane Scott had been receiving phone calls from an unknown male. Sometimes the man called and declared his love to Dorothy. Others, he threatened to kill her. The man said that he was watching her and knew her routine. Dorothy was terrified. She thought she recognized the stalker's voice, but she couldn't quite place it. Over time, the calls intensified. The man would call to tell her that he knew where she was, and would describe to her what she was wearing. On one occasion, the man called and told Dorothy to go and look outside he had left her a gift on the windshield of her car he had left her a dead rose dorothy was so afraid for her safety that she started taking karate lessons she told her mother vera that she was even considering buying a gun on wednesday may 28 1980 dorothy jane scott dropped her son off at her parents house and headed to work. A team meeting was planned for after work that day. Dorothy and her fellow employees gathered. As her boss was talking, Dorothy noticed that one of her co-workers, Conrad Bostron, didn't look well. He was having trouble staying in his chair. He was sweating, wincing in pain, and his arm appeared red and swollen. I've got to get him to the hospital, Dorothy told her co-workers. He needs medical attention. Another employee, Pam Head, offered to assist her, and the two women took Conrad Bostron to UC Irvine Medical Center. On their way to the hospital, Dorothy quickly stopped by her parents' home to let them know what was happening, and that she would be late picking up Sean. She quickly changed her black scarf for a red one, and rushed back out the door to take Conrad to the hospital. At around 9 p.m., they arrived to the emergency room. It turned out that Conrad had been bitten by a deadly black widow spider. Pam and Dorothy sat in the waiting room, flipping through magazines and idly making small talk. Two hours later, Conrad finally emerged. The doctors were releasing him and had given him a prescription to collect on his way out the doctors were releasing him and had given him a prescription to collect on his way out. It was now after 11 p.m. Pam stayed with Conrad as he waited in line at the pharmacy while Dorothy went to get the car. After they collected his prescription, Conrad Bostrin and Pam Head went to meet Dorothy Jane Scott near the emergency room entrance. After waiting for several minutes near the entrance, the pair were about to head up towards the parking lot when they saw Dorothy's car fast approaching. Pam and Conrad waved their hands so that Dorothy could see them. Then the headlights went out. The car suddenly turned to the right and sped off into the night. Pam and Conrad speculated that Dorothy may have rushed off to pick up her son, in a time before cell phones, Dorothy's co-workers decided to wait for her. When two hours passed, and Dorothy still hadn't returned, they informed the security at the medical center and called Dorothy's parents to see if she had returned to the house for Sean. She hadn't. Dorothy would never leave anybody like that at the hospital, Dorothy's father, Jacob Scott, told police. If she took them there... She would not leave them. She would take them back, even if she had something to do. She would take them back, or take them with her. She wouldn't just up and leave them. That wasn't her way. She was the most caring person I've ever known. At 4.30 a.m. the next morning, approximately 10 miles from the UC Irvine Medical Center, a vehicle was found abandoned and set ablaze in an alley. It was Dorothy's station wagon, but there was no sign of Dorothy Jane Scott. Without physical evidence, detectives first turned to the most likely suspect, Dorothy's ex-husband, Dennis Terry. Terry had been living in Missouri, but police found evidence that he had recently been in California in the days prior to Dorothy's abduction. But Terry was quickly ruled out when phone records proved that he was back in Missouri when Dorothy was taken. Police questioned all of Dorothy's co-workers multiple times, but found no new leads. Dorothy appeared to have no enemies, and since she worked in the back, out of public view, they concluded that it was unlikely that her stalker would have been a customer. In desperation, Dorothy's parents even consulted a psychic. Then, on June 4th, A week after Dorothy Jane Scott went missing, Vera and Jacob Scott received a phone call. Are you related to Dorothy Scott? A male voice asked. Yes, Dorothy's mother Vera replied. I've got her, he said. And hung up. It would be the first call of many. Almost every Wednesday afternoon, the man would call. Police advised the Scots not to talk to the press, but it wasn't long before Jacob had had enough. He contacted the Santa Ana Register, and they ran a story. When the story came out on June 12th, Santa Ana Register editor Pat Riley received a call. I killed her. A male voice said, I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. The man then recounted details about Dorothy's disappearance that night that hadn't been printed. She was wearing a red scarf, he said, and her co worker had a spider bite. The caller claimed that Dorothy had called him to tell him that she was at the medical center. Pam had, however, said that this was impossible, because Dorothy had only left her side once throughout the evening, and that was to use the ladies' room at the hospital right before she went to get the car. And Dorothy's parents and friends had never heard of or seen her with a boyfriend. She was very compassionate. If anybody had a problem, Dorothy would sit down and talk to them, try to help them. Jacob Scott said, Maybe this time she was compassionate with somebody who took the whole thing wrong. Maybe they have a twisted mind, and perhaps they felt she loved them. Those things have been known to happen. For over three years, the man called Vera and Jacob Scott. Sometimes he would say that he had killed Dorothy. Other times he would say that she was alive and that he was holding her captive. "'We had the line tapped,' Vera Scott told the Santa Ana Orange County Register. "'But he either didn't stay on long enough, or called when it wasn't tapped. "'Just before she disappeared,' Vera said, "'her daughter received a call from the stalker. "'He said he'd find her alone, and when he did, he would cut her to bits.'" Vera recalled, He tortured me for three years. The calls continued until April of 1984, when for the first time, it was Jacob who answered the phone. The caller quickly hung up. Some have speculated that perhaps the man hung up because if Jacob had heard his voice, he would have recognized it. On August 6, 1984, a construction worker came across some partially burned bones off Santa Canyon Road in northeast Anaheim. Among the remains were a human skull, a pelvis, an arm, and two thigh bones. Investigators believed that the scorch marks weren't from an attempt to burn the body, but were actually the result of a brush fire in October of 1982 that had destroyed 125 homes in the area. Meaning the body had been there for almost two years, maybe more. Dental records confirmed the identity. It was Dorothy Jane Scott. Among the remains were a turquoise ring and a lady's watch. Dorothy's mother Vera confirmed that they belonged to her daughter. The watch had been broken and stopped working at exactly 12.30 a.m. on May 29, 1980, not long after Dorothy's vehicle sped out of the hospital parking lot, leaving her co worker stranded and waiting. Dorothy's cause of death could not be determined. Two days after the news came out that Dorothy Jane Scott's body had been found, Vera and Jacob Scott got another phone call. Is Dorothy there? Dorothy's father, Jacob Scott, passed away in 1994. Her mother, Vera Scott, died in 2002. Her son, Sean, continues to search for answers. This has been Murder Minute. For True Crime Anytime, Download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.